Okay, welcome back to Musar for Sar Shalom Women. Hope you'll excuse the uh, casual dress today. I'm on my way to a poolside birthday party immediately after class. So I'm kind of dressed for that event. Um, so welcome back and uh, hope you're all here and tag in when you get online so I'll know you're here. Okay, so Tammuz 17. <coughs> also, excuse me today, I've got some kind of an allergy cough or something, so I'll try to get through this. <clears throat> Tammuz 17, or uh, the beginning of the three weeks, begins this coming Sunday with a day of fasting, a daytime day of fasting. And that will go for three weeks and end on Tisha B'Av. And we've done some talking about what all of this means. Hello, everybody. Good to have y'all. Uh, I know that several ladies, including myself, have been making the final selection and purchases of their Kentucky Derby hats for the Tuba Av event coming up later in August because we are not uh, really to uh, buy anything new during these three weeks. <clears throat> oh, and by the way, uh, you know, the fun times never end at Sar Shalom, and we had the greatest time this weekend with the Brit of Vanessa Coleman's baby, Malachi. So we had a great time with the folks from Houston. <clears throat> I hope that you saw Rabbi's Drosh uh, on Aka this last Shabbat. It was excellent. And I thought today that I would, I just, it was so good that I wanted to reiterate some of those points because he really gave us some strong warnings and admonitions about what to do these next three weeks. <clears throat> he, um, he warned us that the attacks on the Yetzirah are going to increase. And, you know, I've, I've noticed already that several of you have posted that uh, maybe you've had relatives that have had some, some accidents and some things. So we really need to be on our guard these next three weeks. He, <clears throat> he also talked about and I have noticed this as well, that the Yetzirah will increase his attacks right before any Moedim. And Rabbi said that on Friday afternoons, the Yetzirah works overtime to do anything he can to disrupt uh, our peaceful Shabbat. So Rabbi gave us some very stern uh, warnings and admonitions. And the first one <clears throat> he gave us was make no big decisions during this time. Don't decide to get married. Don't decide to get divorced. Don't decide to change jobs. In fact, <clears throat> we were just about, my husband and I, just about to start some major remodeling. And we are going to make sure that does not start until after uh, Tisha B'Av. <clears throat> Excuse me. He also strongly admonished us to be extra, extra careful during this time against Lashon Hara. We know that this time commemorates the, or memorializes the um, destruction of the temples. And we know that the last temple was destroyed because of baseless hate, which was brought on primarily by Lashon Hara. So we want to be extra careful about not engaging in Lashon Hara during these, this period of time. He also encouraged us to judge each other favorably, as always, but especially during this time, and to be more in a spirit of, of unity rather than dissension. And, and just generally to be on guard against everything. Just be careful, be extra careful with, with what you do. 
He also encouraged us to do extra davening for protection, asking Hashem to protect us every day, our families, and especially each other, uh, since historically during these days have been days of some tragedies in the history of the Jewish people. Uh, and finally, <clears throat> he gave us the uh, admonition, no complaining, because actually complaining really is, <clears throat> excuse me, Lashon Hurrah against Hashem. Uh, and I was with a group that uh, after the drosh, we went over and did some extra study. And we had a long discussion about how we can turn everything around to positive. Uh, you know, we're not we're not going to complain about the weather. We're not going to complain about anything, especially during these, these three weeks. And we're just going to turn everything around to positive. Because <clears throat> we know that everything Hashem does is for our good anyway. In fact, Rabbi said, if you're going to complain, complain about your sin. Why am I continuing to sin? Why do I keep doing this? Why do I keep doing that sin? So if we're going to complain, that's the thing to complain about. <clears throat> and I think for us women here in this class, we've already kind of got that mindset of looking at ourselves, looking at our sin, and realizing that you know, we really don't have anything else to complain about. We need to deal with ourselves. <clears throat> Excuse me. So I pray that this next Sunday is a is a meaningful and not too difficult uh, fast for you. May no tragedy come to you during these next three weeks. And just really hold each other up in prayer um, as we enter this kind of difficult and, and challenging time period. <clears throat> there was another verse that came up from our study of Eka on Shabbat. And I loved this verse. It was Acha Lamentations 340. Let us search and examine our ways and return to Hashem. <coughs> Excuse me. And basically that's what we've been doing all summer. And so let's get about that. Let's get to our text and get about examining ourselves, searching our ways and returning to Hashem. In our text, for anyone that's new, I just like to always show our book. We are doing a hard, long, hard summer of the book of Sha'are Teshuvah. And we will be finishing the book uh, by the end of August. And uh, I'm looking at some things for the 40 days, <clears throat> beginning a little one that will hopefully be a little bit less taxing on our brain. <clears throat> Last week, we studied the fourth severity level. And we looked at prohibitions regarding seeing and hearing. Some of those that we covered were haughtiness, uh, raising one's eyes, and also how our ears are the most easily burned by sin of all of our limbs. We looked at transgressions that involve closing the hands or, be, or the lack of generosity. We looked at borrowing with no idea how to repay, paying a worker in a timely manner, we looked at the burial of the dead in a timely manner and not turning a blind eye to our neighbor's property damage. <clears throat> we studied how sin can affect the whole community in some ways that perhaps it could be handled. And we looked at the importance of keeping our vows. Then we also started the fifth level of severity, which involved prohibitions against things that involve a specific action and are subject to a more... Uh, a higher level of punishment, such as lashes. And among those we studied were working on Shabbat, consuming blood, hitting others, destroying one's beard if you're a man, 
wearing shotnets, which is the mixture of linen and wool, and how avoiding even touching the opposite sex is a safeguard against uncovering the nakedness of a close relative. We looked at what it means to put a stumbling block before the blind and not destroying trees during wartime, and finally, not destroying items that might be useful to others. And I have made a real point this week for myself of not throwing away bits of water that are maybe in a water bottle, but using them to water my plants or something. So that one kind of stuck with me. <clears throat> so today, we're going to continue on with level five. And these are prohibitions that involve a specific action, but they involve refraining from a specific action. And we're going to start in our book, our text on page 361, with Vaikra 1923. When you come to the land and you shall plant any food fruit trees, you shall treat its fruit as forbidden. For three years they shall be orla to you. They shall not be eaten. Now the word orla means sealed off or blocked off. So it's something that you are not permitted to have. Rabbi Yonah says in the text that most agricultural mitzvot apply only in Eretz Israel, but this one applies both inside the land and outside the land. And he went on to say that Orla also includes eating produce from a tree owned by a non-Jew if that tree is within the first three years. Now, I don't know if you've paused and thought about that for a minute, for a minute, but I <clears throat> I had a lot of fun with this one this week uh, in preparing for this class. And, you know, until we really study something, sometimes we just take something for granted. And I'd always taken it for granted that I could go to Walmart and buy an apple and it did not have to have a hexure. But then along comes this study and I wasn't so sure. Because what if what Rabbi Jonas says is Holocaust? then that wouldn't mean I couldn't go to Walmart and buy that apple. So I began, I freaked out a little bit for a moment. And so I began going to some of the the Torah scholars in Sarshalom. Thankfully, we have many uh, people, especially some uh, very learned men. And I said, help me. I've got to understand this. And they began out. They begin pulling out sources and looking things up, and <clears throat> the one source that was very helpful was uh, Sefer Hachinuch, which is a, a book. <clears throat> uh, they're not sure of the author. Possibly Reva Aharon Halevi of Barcelona was written in the 13th century in Spain, and it's a text a little bit similar to the one we're in that studies all 613 mitzvot, and. Those sources don't necessarily 100% agree with Rabbi Yonah. Some say <clears throat> that um, it doesn't apply at all anymore because there's no temple. Some say it it um, it applies, but only in Israel. And then there were others that said, yes, it applies both inside and out. So um, I went to some modern sources. I wanted to see how people today interpret this. And I found a good a Chabad article that said <clears throat> the prohibition of eating fruit of the first three years does apply no matter where the fruit is grown. However, the fruit grown outside of Israel is forbidden to eat only if you are certain that it is Orla. 
So I suppose if you knew who the grower was and you knew that they were non-Jewish and you knew that they had picked that fruit within the first three years, then it would be forbidden. But most of the time we go to the grocery store and we don't know where that fruit came from. And in that case, because we are not certain, we are permitted to eat it. Now in Israel, it's a little bit more stringent in that uh, if they don't know, they're not permitted to eat it. They have to know that it is not Orla or they are not permitted to eat it. So I'm a little bit more comfortable after my week-long study that I can still go to Walmart and buy my apple and I'm okay. But I don't take it for granted anymore. And I am thankful that I don't think right now I have to fly to Israel for my produce. But it was a great week and I learned a lot. And sometimes you start pulling on a string and you just don't know where you're going to end up. So it was really good. So now, with a little bit of sigh of relief, uh, let's continue our discussion. Somebody asked, is this only for trees? It's for trees and uh, there's a little bit different discussion on grapevines. Um, <clears throat> so I would encourage you to read the book, but not uh, get stuck on just what Rabbi Yonah says, but do some additional study as well, and perhaps even do an Ask the Rabbi. Um, <clears throat> so let's continue our discussion of what Rabbi Yonah says about the Orla. It is not only to forbidden to eat the Orla yourself, but it also you're forbidden to benefit from it. So for, an, for example, an, an olive tree, you could not use the oil to light your lamp if it was still within that first three years. Uh, Orla includes, uh, and he says here in the book, anything from the vineyard that is, uh, has mixed seeds, whether it grows in Israel or not. And he says, eating the Orla is punishable by, by Malkut, which is lashes. <clears throat> he goes on to expand on this a little bit, that giving Orla to a non-Jew is also subject to the same punishment. Now, he included in this giving Hametz on Pesach and or giving meat mixed with milk to a non-Jew. He said even if one gives Orla to his pet, to his dog or his livestock, because he derives a benefit from that because he kind of saved on his feed by giving them the Orla. <clears throat> and I know myself and I have known many others that when we're cleaning out our pantry at Pesach, we often give our leftover hummets that we know we're not going to eat to someone who's a non-Jew. And so I don't know in the future what I'm going to do about that, but I know I'm going to do some additional research. I didn't get to do much on that one this week. But uh, so we have a few months before Pesach and we can certainly do some study on that and see where that leads us. Um, After the three years, the fruit cannot be eaten unless it's first redeemed. And there's a note, uh, note number nine on page 363 that explains that in the time of the Beit HaMikdash, the fruit would be taken to to Jerusalem and eaten there. uh, But nowadays, without the temple, uh, there is a process. You take a coin of minimal value and declare that the sanctity of the produce should be transferred to that coin and then that coin is destroyed. This comes from the Shulchan Aruch Yorei De'a 2946. Um, So that's about all I know on the Orla this week and it was quite an interesting topic and um, one that we probably want to do some additional study on. 
Okay, on page 364, we talk about another uh, prohibition involving eating, which is the Gid Ha Nashe. And this is the sinew of the thigh. Uh, and we um, are prohibited from eating it either from the right or the left thigh of any kosher animals. And this comes from Bereshit 32:33. Therefore, the children of Israel must not eat the Gid Ha Nashe. Again, we are also prohibited from benefiting from it. So technically, we should not give it to a non-Jew or to our animals. On page 365, he goes on to talk about stealing. Vaikra 1911, uh, you shall not steal, you shall not deny falsely, and you shall not lie to one another. Now, this one had some interesting things that I ran across this week. The sages state in Bava Metzia 61b that this includes taking something just to aggravate someone. Perhaps you have a child that keeps leaving their stuff out and so you take their favorite toy and you hide it to teach them uh, to take better care of their stuff. He says this is prohibited. He also points out that it is forbidden to steal in a theft-like manner, even if you plan to use it and put it right back. He said, don't look like a thief. If you're going to do that, just take the item, use it, put it back in a very open manner. And he also talked about, do not steal. If you have something stolen and you know who stole it, don't go in a thief-like manner and steal your own object back. You know, we've talked before about not only not sinning, but also avoiding the appearance of sin. So I think that's what he's getting to here. Okay, on page 366, uh, Vaikra 1926, you shall not read omens and you shall not divine auspicious times. An omen, of course, is a superstitious sign. We might, uh, some people might connect with success or failure, bad luck, they might call it. We might, in our society, think of walking under a ladder or breaking a mirror or uh, having a black cat cross our path. And he says these are prohibited, which we pretty much knew. Divining includes seeking out someone to find when is a favorable time to do something. He says, and he said this also includes the words of astrologers. And he says, rather let your heart trust in Hashem, the God of the heavens and the earth, for he alone controls man's destiny. In Devarim 18.13, it says, you shall be wholehearted with Hashem, your God. For these nations that you are possessing, they hearken to diviners and fortune tellers. But as for you, not so has Hashem, your God, given you. So it may be tempting sometime to uh, seek out those things, but we really are prohibited from doing that. On page 368, he uh, talks about perversion of justice. Vaikra 1915. You shall not commit a perversion of justice. You shall not favor the poor. You shall not honor the great. With righteousness, you shall judge your fellow. Now the sages state that in this uh, passage, the term justice refers to practicing integrity in matters of measurement, weight, and volume. And anyone who has to measure out merchandise uh, on a scale is uh, is called a judge because he's having to judge how much it, the weight or the uh, the item is. 
And he is, so he's comparable to a judge and he is not to pervert justice. And if he does, he brings about five evil things. He contaminates the land. He desecrates the name of Hashem. He drives away the divine presence. He causes the Jewish people to fall by the sword of their enemies and causes them to be exiled from their land. You would never think that something as simple as um, having a scale that wasn't accurate could lead to so much uh, terrible things. In Vayikra 19.35.36, he goes on, You shall do no just injustice in judgment, in measurement of length, weight, or volume. You shall have honest scales, honest weights, an honest ephah, and an honest hen. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. There's actually a term called midah keneged midah. It's called measure for measure. And this is a very common and important concept in Judaism and throughout the Torah. And it goes far beyond actual measurements on a scale and basically also says what you do for others comes back to you. As well as how you may sin, uh, measure for measure it will be uh, meted out to you in punishment. And this concept is all throughout Torah and Tanakh, and I would encourage you on your own to do some extra study in that area. You might find it very fascinating to look at the concept of Midah, Keneged Midah. On page 370, we look at acting as a creditor. Shemot twenty two twenty four says, When, not if, but when you lend money to my people... To the poor person who is with you, you shall not act toward him as a creditor. We are not to distress the borrower by constantly reminding them, hey, you owe me that money. He says we're not even to drive past their house or go past their house kind of as a reminder, hey, you still owe me that money. Because by doing so, we crush their spirit. Shemot 22.24 is the next one. Uh, and it says you shall know you shall not lay interest upon him, and this is a continuation of the previous prohibition on uh, not acting as a creditor. And Rabbi Yonah goes on to say that we are not even to be the guarantor, uh, the co-guarantor for a loan in which interest is being charged. So something to think about when maybe someone asks you to sign an, a loan with them. On page. Um, Oh, on page 372 and 373, he goes into all the prohibitions relating to farm animals. And if you have farm animals, I encourage you to read that section on your own. But for the sake of time, we're only going to cover a few things that uh, he brings up. And the first one is Devarim 22.10. You shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. We are commanded not to even hook together in a yoke or even a rope two different types of animals. He goes on to discuss in a a little bit of length the mule, which I found a little bit interesting and maybe a little bit amusing, which we know uh, is the offspring of a female horse and a male donkey or a male horse and a female donkey. The offspring of a female horse and a male donkey and the offspring of a female donkey and a male horse are considered two different species and it is forbidden to bind them together. Now he goes on. 
Vicra 1919 says, you shall not mate your animal into another species. So we are not, we are forbidden to breed animals of two different species as well. And he goes on with his discussion of the mule. He said, if you have a mule, and I want someone who's a farmer to tell me what's wrong with this statement. Uh, a mule who wants to mate cannot be mated except to another mule. It cannot be mated with a horse and it cannot be mated with a donkey. The only animal she can mate with is a male mule. Now, does anybody know what is wrong with that statement? Do we have any farmers out there? And I, I went on, I did a little bit of research just to make sure that this was true. In almost every case, it would actually be a miracle, but in almost every case, mules are sterile. So I don't know why he's going into this big long discussion of mating mules when mules are almost always sterile. If you ever have a mule, because their chromosomes have a different number. It's a whole fascinating thing about why they can't reproduce. But if a male, if a mule reproduces, it's a miracle pretty much. So, but he does go into a big discussion of this, which I thought was a little bit of amusing. Um, page 375. Now here's one that I had to stop and ponder on for a minute. Vaikra 26.1, you shall not place a flooring stone in your land upon which to prostrate yourself. Now, what in the, what in the world are we talking about here? I actually sometimes will look in a couple of different versions or translations just to get a different idea on how different uh, people m may have translated this verse. And the King James Version says it this way. You shall not make idols for yourself, neither a carved image nor a sacred pillar shall you rear up for yourselves, nor shall you set up an engraved stone on your land in order to bow down for it, for I am the Lord your God. So basically we are prohibited uh, from bowing down upon a stone floor when praying to Hashem, whether it's in a synagogue or any other place. <clears throat> and it is customary that if the building has a stone floor, and there is uh, really only one time of the year that traditionally Jews kneel completely on the floor, and that's on Yom Kippur. And they said if, if the building has a stone floor, generally it's customary to cover the floor with uh, some kind of a, a blank, uh, a rug or something, so that we do not prostrate directly onto the stone. I I would have to do some additional research on this one, but I'm guessing it's another one of those of the appearance of sin. We don't want to look like we're bowing down to the stone itself. Okay, page 376. Vaikra 1143. Do not make yourselves repulsive. Now, how would we make ourselves repulsive? Rabbi Yona goes on to say, do not eat things that other people consider disgusting. Uh, he gives the example. Now, that might differ between you and me. I might think if you eat liver in front of me, I'm pretty disgusted. But that's not what he's talking about. And he gives the example of eating a fish while it's alive. I know there used to be many, many years before me, a college uh, tradition where you swallowed a live goldfish. That's pretty disgusting. He also gives, or a grasshopper or something while it's still alive. That would be pretty disgusting. 
Okay, page 377. Now we're getting to some more serious things that uh, probably relate more to uh, us here in this day. Vaikra 1929. Do not desecrate your daughter to make her a harlot, lest the land become unfaithful and the land become filled with depravity. Uh, we could probably spend a lot of time discussing this one in the context of our current environment, even in our country here in the United States. Uh, the sages in, Sifra, in the Sifra to this verse explains that a woman, I mean a man, a person, a, a, a father, must not give over his unmarried daughter to a man to cohabitate with her. And likewise, a woman must not give herself over to a man when, she, when it's not in the context of a betrothal to cohabitate with the man. And he goes on to say that if this occurs, the land will be unfaithful and bring forth produce not on your land. Perhaps there will be a drought or no rain and other people will have um, rain and produce. But uh, if, if this becomes prevalent in in uh, the uh, God's people, then uh, the land will not produce fruit. So the question often comes up then, what of the concubine? Rabbi Yonah explains that this was a marriage-like, long-term relationship without a ketubah and was permitted and reserved mostly and almost always for a king or a king-like leader. Uh, we might think of Avraham, who was really a king-like leader. And he explains that for everyone else, this is a forbidden practice. He goes on, uh, if you would like to read it, on pages 378 to 380 to talk uh, in more depth about the cohabitating, cohabitating with an unmarried woman. And I would encourage you to read that outside of class. Okay, page 380. Another prohibition. Devarim 1421. You shall not eat any navela or nevela. And this is the carcass of an animal that did not undergo uh, shahita or kosher slaughter. Rabbi Yonah stresses the importance of slaughter done correctly and says that it is, it is fitting for those that are in a position of leadership to warn people uh, regarding the laws of shahita. And he goes on to say that every community, every Torah-keeping community should select a community shochet, who fears sin for a man who does not fear God may mean, may become negligent in regarding the proper procedure. And he goes on to discuss this again on pages 381 and 382 and a little more in, uh, in depth. And I think most people that I know pretty much let Tom Thumb or uh, Trader Joe's sources deal with that instead of trying to... Um, Kosher slaughter your own animals. If that's something that um, you want to learn to do, then I would encourage you to do a lot of research and talk to Rabbi and some others before you jump off into doing that. Page 382, uh, our next prohibition. And we're going to go through a whole bunch of them very quickly, very short and briefly here on the next couple of pages. The next one is Shemot 23.8, Do Not Accept a Bride. A bribe. A judge must not accept a bribe in order to judge fairly. Neither may he accept a fee from either of the parties. 
and the sages state in Ketubo 105a, if one takes a fee for judging, his decisions are automatically void. And in the book on page 383, the note number four, it says that this refers to judges for which judging is not their primary occupation. If it is their primary, primary occupation, then a community fund should be set up and they should be paid a salary, which uh, would avoid the above issues. He goes on on page 384, uh, and the sages continue on in Ketu Vote 105b, that uh, when the Torah says do not accept a bribe, it also includes a bribe of words. So if one of the disputants in a lawsuit uh, says a lot of words of flattery to the judge, the judge should withdraw himself from that case because he may become biased based on those words. Page 385, Shemot 1216, or work may be done on a Yom Tov except for what must be eaten by every person, only that may be done. So although we are prohibited from working on the Yom Tov, we are permitted to prepare food on the Yom Tov for that day. Page 387. I had a little bit of fun with this one with my husband. Uh, page uh, 387, Devarim 22.5. A man shall not wear a woman's garment. Of course, Rabbi Yonah always expounds on these, and he expounds us to say, not only should a man not wear a woman's garment, but he gives a warning against a man engaging in feminine grooming practices. Uh, I immediately thought of, I've seen men wear nail polish or eyeliner. and But he specifically re mentioned removing the hair from the underarm area. I didn't really realize that women shaved under their arms that many years ago because he wrote this book I think in the 1200s but apparently that was a practice so men should not engage in feminine uh, hygiene practices page 387 Deverim 22.8 when you build a house you shall make a parapet for your roof a fence around your roof that you may not bring bloodshed on your house if anyone falls from it now, other than the obvious meaning, uh, this would also include any hazards around your house that someone could get hurt. So it might be, he mentions a vicious dog or rickety stairs or anything in which a person might uh, become injured. Page 387, also we look at Devarim fifteen nineteen. You shall not work with the firstborn of your ox, nor may you shear the firstborn of your flock. And Rabbi explains that a firstborn animal uh, must be left to develop any blemishes on its own, and we should not intentionally blemish that animal so that we can keep it. Uh, page 388. Here's another one that might be more um, relative to us today. Devarim 12, 3 through 4. You shall not obliterate the idolatrous... Uh, you shall obliterate the idolatrous names from that place. You shall not do this to Hashem your God. So basically, we are commanded not to erase the name of Hashem. This is another reason for be, being very careful, number one, with writing the name of Hashem in the first place. Uh, and second of all, being careful with pages, documents, anything that has the name of Hashem. Now, 
a lot of examples come to mind. One uh, is some people when they're studying their Torah portion to get up and read from the Torah uh, at the Bema on Shabbat will uh, print a copy of that Torah portion so that they can study it throughout the week. Once that week is over, they be, have to be very careful what they do with that paper. And it needs to be just, uh, properly destroyed. Um, and I would ask you to, you know, if you're... If you don't know, then contact Rabbi and say, I've got all these pages. And I don't know what to do with them. Or if you have an old prayer book that's falling apart or an old other biblical text that, that just needs to be put away. And um, but we can't just throw it away. So we need to. And Rabbi does take a lot. I've given Rabbi a box of books from time to time of old books that needed to be destroyed. So we just have to be very careful with the name of Hashem and not erasing or obliterating the name of Hashem. Okay, page 389, Vaikra 18.3. Do not perform the practice of the land of Canaan to which I bring you and do not follow their traditions. Rabbi Jonas uh, brings up that this it would include incantations, amulets, even if uh, some kind of healer who, was a, who wasn't a healing professional but gives you some kind of magic uh, thing to wear, and I'm not thinking about essential oils or things like that, but some kind of magic thing, then we are not we are prohibited from doing that. Uh, 389. This is the last one that he brings us in this level five. Eating bread or roasted kernels before the Omer offering. Now we know that um, when the new grain gets ready to harvest, it's about the time of the Omer. And we have to bring a, an Omer offering to the temple before that can be done. Now, of course, today we don't have the temple and we, we're not able to do this. But we still need to study about these prohibitions. Oh, and he says that this one does apply even outside of Eretz Israel. So someday when we have the temple, we can take that grain offering again uh, on a, um, the Omer offering and offer it uh at Shavuot. Okay, whew, we ran through a whole bunch of those today. A lot of prohibitions, uh, some that may have some applicability in our own lives and some that we found a little amusing. So, but let's quickly review what, what we went over today. We talked about the Orla a lot, which is eating fruit produced from a tree in the first three years of its life. We uh, covered not eating the displaced sinew of the thigh, not stealing even your own item back from a thief, not uh, reading omens or divining, seeking out um, fortune tellers, calling that 1-800 number, whatever, perverting justice, especially in weights and measures, acting as a creditor to kind of bug your fellow who that you loan money to, not laying interest on our fellow, not mixing animals of different species, uh, not placing a flooring stone on your land in order to bow down to it, not making yourself repulsive by eating live fish, not having relations outside of marriage, not eating animals that, didn't, that were not kosher slaughtered, not accepting a bribe if you're a judge, and not accepting even a bribe of words. Working on the Yom Tov except for food preparation. 
not wearing a man's garment, I mean a woman's garment if you're a man, not placing hazards in your home, not working with the firstborn of your ox, erasing Hashem's name, adopting the practice of idolatrous nations, and eating the bread or kernels before the Omer offering is given. But remember, we always have to remember, and I want to end every week this uh, of study, of the remainder of our study, with there is no sin for which forgiveness is not possible. So while we're studying and we're learning about all these laws, we're examining ourselves. Is there anything I need to do differently? And then if, if we did something, we've learned now, we repent, and forgiveness is available. A man break a Baruch Hashem. Okay. Well... Let's end today with a little Medot review. And I I don't know if you've noticed this, but I have noticed that Rabbi has a new favorite word. I hear it very frequently in the daily aliyahs. I've even heard it in his Shabbat drashas. And I don't know if anybody knows what it is, but I've kind of perked up every time I heard it. And if anybody knows, I'd love for you to tag in and tell me what you think that word is. Well, I take a little sip of water. Okay, Rabbi's new favorite word is alacrity. I bet I've heard him mention it 20 times at least. Now, we've studied this before back in uh, Everyday Holiness. And what does alacrity mean? In Hebrew, the word is zerazut. Now, Zerazut is um, interpreted as enthusiasm. And we've reviewed enthusiasm recently, but I wanted to review it again uh, since Rebbe's been mentioning it a lot lately and encouraging the trade of alacrity. I just wanted to go look at it from a little bit different perspective than maybe we have been. And so I found a Musar article, Musar Institute article, that says this about alacrity. Never waste a single moment. Do what has to be done. And this is uh, an excerpt from the article, and I'll just pretty much read it. Do you grab moments in life or do they slip away? This midah is about grabbing the opportunities that Hashem puts in front of us when they come our way. When it comes to doing what has to be done, it's all about priorities. Some things are clearly not as important to do as others. The Sefer or Chot Zadikim says that when we learn alacrity, that we learn alacrity from Avraham. Before the Akeda, he woke up early in the morning. Bereshit 22.3 We are not just talking about mitzvot, though. We have to approach daily tasks with this same energy. It can be emails in your box, dishes in the sink, an assignment in school, or laundry. Things need to be accomplished in a timely fashion. Wow. Now, this kind of hits us women right in our own home. And even as I'm reading this, um, as I was preparing for this lesson, uh, I had a pile of laundry and a dish full of sink. Now, I went to the gym this morning and I came home and my dear husband had actually done my dishes. So at least I don't have the pile of dishes, but I still have a pile of laundry that probably needs to get done. So basically, the opposite of alacrity is procrastination. 
And I found the cutest website called Musar Blues, and they have created a little song for every Midot. It's so cute, and I'll try to put a link to that on our Facebook group page later. But they have a song for the Midot of Alacrity, and it's really cute, and it says, If not, now when? And one of the lines says, If I can't do it now, name a time when and make sure I do it then. So that's a good that's a good rule of thumb. If I can't do my laundry right now, at least uh, set a time when I am going to do that. And I told my husband that, you know, uh, I told him a day. I said, I'm going to get that laundry all caught up. So what are some obstacles to alacrity? Well, first one is uh, sometimes can be disorganization. Maybe we're just disorganized and we can't get everything done we need to. Or probably more common is our very busy schedules. Uh, so I would say that the medote of alacrity probably goes hand in hand with the medote of order. If our lives are in order, we probably have an increased trait of alacrity. Uh, everyday holiness also lists good old laziness as an obstacle. Uh, and a lack of enthusiasm about any any task can lead to procrastination. And the Yetzirah is always coming against us as we try to get things done, especially the priority things. And, you know, we talked back when we studied everyday holiness that there are many rationalizations. And the book went on and on about things that uh, we, we can come up with excuses not to do anything. And the Yetzirah will certainly help us in that regard. But Rabbi Luzatos gives us one more obstacle to alacrity, and that is anxiety. Worry and fear can sometimes paralyze us, deplete our enthusiasm, and, and take away our energy for doing anything. So these are obstacles, the things that we need to work on if we're going to increase our mido of alacrity. So everyday holiness asks the question, how can we stoke the fire of enthusiasm or alacrity? Practice gratitude. So now we see that alacrity goes hand in hand with order and hand in hand with gratitude. So we have three midot that go right together. So I'm going to end today with a, a, a verse from Proverbs 6, 6 through 11. Um, and this came out of the uh, our everyday holiness, so you may remember it. But I thought it was a good verse. I mean, good verses for us to end with today. Lazy bones go to the ant, steady its ways, and learn. Without leaders, officers, or rulers, it lays up its stores during the summer, gathers in its food at the harvest. How long will you lie there, lazy bones? When will you wake from your slumber? A little more sleep, a little more slumber, a little more hugging yourself in your bed, and poverty will come calling upon you and want like an armed soldier. So we don't want to be attacked by the armed soldier of poverty. So we need to increase our midot of alacrity. Well, that's our class for today. I highly encourage you to remember and review Rabbi's admonishments as we enter these three weeks. This is no time to let laziness in our studies or prayer. Press on with alacrity and lift each other up in prayer and protection for, for each one of us during this time. And I hope that you uh, 
do not have a too hard of a time with uh, the the Tammuz Day as we enter that on Sunday, and we will see you back here next Tuesday. Okay, welcome back to Musar for Sar Shalom Women. Uh, here on a beautiful Tuesday afternoon, the weather is not quite as hot today, and so we're really enjoying a little break in the Texas summer heat. Um, tag in when you get online so I'll know that you're there. It always makes me feel a little bit more comfortable knowing that uh, I'm not talking to an empty room. Uh, I hope your fast of Tammuz was not too painful, and... As we begin these three weeks, I want to repeat some of Rabbi's comments from this drosh this last Saturday. And uh, he's, first of all, he started out by saying that we must have commitment to this, uh, to this whole Torah movement, to this whole walk of life, and that there should be no plan B, no other thing that we're like, if this doesn't work out, we'll go do that. There is no plan B. He t he encouraged us to be like Rocky, if you've ever seen the Rocky movie, to stick with it. And I actually went home over the weekend and watched uh, the Rocky movie just to kind of get in that mindset. You know, the last temple was destroyed because of baseless hate, and that began with Lashon Hara. And so he also cautioned us again against Lashon Hara, and he reminded us of the power of our words. Of, of words, but not our words necessarily, but rather the power of the words of Hashem. And he challenged us to speak into existence the words of Hashem. And then he gave us a, a very tall challenge, uh, maybe for some of us, that during these three weeks that we are in to commit every single day to the times of prayer, to Shakrit, to Minka, and either to Erev uh, or uh, Ma'ariv or to the bedtime Shema. And uh, I, I know most of you are familiar, but Shakrit can be done as, uh, right at sunrise. Uh, Minka can be done anytime before sunset. And then you can do Ma'ariv right after. Or you can do the bedtime Shema before you go to bed. So I encourage you to do that. Um, I've actually set up someone to hold me accountable, a friend, and I've told her to text me every few days and keep keep asking me, are you doing it? He also encouraged us not to get so focused on the halakha, on the trivial things that we can do or can't do during these three weeks, and be more focused on the spirit of what these three weeks are all about. And he also reminded us, as we've learned in our current book study, that trials and tears will bring Teshuvah. So we are in a week, uh, three weeks of actually uh, a time of mourning. And so this time of trials and tears will bring Teshuvah. And finally, he challenged or asked us to be specific in our prayers for three things, among the other things that we pray for. And the first one was the city of Saginaw. Um, and that the holy sparks would be gathered up from our city in which Sar Shalom is located. If you're in a different city, you might pray for the city of Saginaw as well as your own city. 
The second thing he asked us to be in very strong prayer for is the completion of the mikvah. This is going to be a great event uh, in the world as well as in our city and in the congregation of Sar Shalom. So we pray that this will be uh, moved along and completed very soon. And finally, he asked us to pray for the coming of Mashiach, not just like we do normally in a very casual way, but in a very intense, longing way. And of course, we know that when Mashiach comes, he will rebuild the temple for us. Well, I am so glad that you have stuck it out and stuck out this study that we're going through this summer. Excuse me, I'm still dealing with the last of this little cold that Rachel and I have been sharing this week. Um, we will finish this book for uh, those that may be just joining today for the first time. We're, we're going through this summer in Sha'arei Teshuvah, and we will finish by the end of August. So when the temperature begins to change in September, we will have finished this long, hard, hot summer of study. Uh, then, uh, early September, uh, the days of Elul will begin. And those are great and wonderful days, days of Teshuva, days when they say that the king is in the field. And so in anticipation of that, I've been reviewing a number of different books, looking at several different ones. And this week, I just want to give you a little sneak preview. I have finally settled on a book that was recommended to me by another Sar Shalom member, Bill Wilson. And I think it's going to be a perfect transition from the book we're studying now on Teshuva. And this book is much shorter. The chapters are much simpler and easier to read. And yet it's still a book that was based on an ancient Musar text. So I'm going to show you the book and I don't want you to get all concerned up over the title. Um, it's called The Kabbalah of Forgiveness. Uh, it is based on the work of uh, Rabbi Cordovero from the 1500s, I believe in Spain, and it's commented on in our day by an author called Henry Abrahamson. And although it has the word Kabbalah in the title, I have read through most of it, almost all of it, and it's an excellent book. This book uses the 13 traits of mercy of, of Hashem found in Exodus 34 to teach us how to forgive others. Um, and there's not a lot of heavy, what you might think of as Kabbalah in it. So don't be concerned about the title. Uh, it's based on only the first chapter of Rabbi Cordovero's text called Date Palm of Devorah. You may have heard of that text. It's an ancient Musar text, but this book is based only on the first chapter. Uh, and this book is also available on Kindle. So if you like to use Kindle, I think it was $3 and something on Kindle. So if you prefer it that way or you can't quite afford the the paperback book, then I encourage you to get it that way. And we're going to work on that book from Elul, first of Elul, through Yom Kippur. So it'll be a great uh, transition from our summer study into Yom Kippur. And then we'll probably take a, a break during the fall holidays while we enjoy Sukkot and a few other things. And then we'll get back together. 
Okay, so today we have a lot to cover and I want to jump right in and try maybe get through this hopefully before the hour is up. Last week we studied level five, finished level five, and those were prohibitions that involved specific actions. And amongst others, we looked at eating the or law. We had a long discussion on that. We talked about stealing even uh, your own item back. You're prohibited. We talked about the prohibition of reading omens and divining, perverting weights and justice uh, measures, acting as a creditor to your uh, to your fellow that you lend money to or giving him interest, mixing animals of different species, and we talked about the mule a bit, relations outside of marriage, eating animals not kosher slaughtered, accepting a bribe, even a bribe of words, and this was specifically for a judge, working on a yom tov except for preparing food for that yom tov. We talked about men wearing women's garments or even uh, doing women's hygiene things like painting the nails or whatever. Allowing hazards in your home that might harm someone else, erasing the name of Hashem, and adopting the practices of idolatrous nations. So uh, we've been going through a lot of heavy-duty stuff, but we always remember there is no sin for which forgiveness is not possible. We study the mitzvot, we examine ourselves against those mitzvot, we see our shortcomings, but we have the answer. The answer is Teshuva. Today, we're going to cover several levels, uh, and hopefully we'll make it through all of them. We're going to cover levels 6 through 9. Then next week, we're going to cover and finish level 10, and then we'll be only a few days away or a week or so away from the completion of the three weeks. So let's look at level 6. We're going to be starting on page 391 in our textbook. This level covers the sins punishable by death at the hands of heaven. Now, punishment by the death by the hands of heaven affects only the sinner himself. In our next level that we'll look at in a minute, we're going to look at karet, karat, which affects not only the sinner but possibly his uh, descendants. Because of his Death at the hands of heaven generally is considered less severe than Karat. However, the sages don't see it that way necessarily. In Pesachim 32b and Yahut Shimoni, uh, in a comment on Hosea 14.12, they say, In one matter and in one respect, the penalty of death at the hands of heaven is more severe than the penalty of Karat with regard to one who is liable to death at the hands of heaven. Um, for death surrounds him and virtually enters through his windows, they say. The animals he owns dies, perhaps. His cow grazes in the meadow, meadow and suddenly dies. His chicken picks through the garbage and suddenly dies. Death simply attaches itself to him until it destroys him. Now, Corette, that we'll look at in a minute, may also cause a person to die but also his children. Um, but it doesn't have that pervasive element of death surrounding him. So the sages see that the death at the hands of heaven and Karat, which we'll look at in a minute, are both very serious and almost equal. 
Rabbi Yona goes on to give some examples of prohibitions that would be punishable by the hands of heaven. The first one is from the Mishnah Sanhedrin 83a, one who eats tavel. Now, what is tavel? Tavel is grain that has not yet been rendered acceptable through separation of the tithe, the teremot and the masot. Masarot, sorry. The mitzvah of separating tarumot and masarot from produce still does apply to produce that is grown in Eretz Israel, even today. The terumot is to go to the Levi every year and the masar to the poor in the third and the sixth years of the Shemitah cycle. Uh, and in the past, it was taken to Jerusalem and eaten there. In the absence of the temple, the Beit HaMikdash, the terumot and the masarot, Sarot are to still be separated, and they have come up with a procedure for this that has been developed for those that need to do that in these days. The next one that he mentions is in the Gemara and the Midrash in various places, and it's uh, based on a scripture from Shemot twenty two twenty one. You may not cause pain to any widow or orphan. If you cause him pain, for he shall cry out to me, that's Hashem speaking, I will surely hear his outcry. My wrath shall blaze and I shall kill you by the sword. Or, as we're saying here, at the hands of heaven. The sages say that this applies whether the orphan or widow actually cries out or not. Uh, the next one is in Job twenty-two twenty-three. Do not rob the destitute because he is destitute, for Hashem will fight their fight and rob the soul of those who rob them. Again, death at the hands of heaven. Hashem punishes the robber by taking away his life. And we discussed this a little bit uh, in level three. The next one is on page 396, and it is, uh, Rabbi will, uh, Yona will discuss Lashon Hara in more detail later uh, in our next level. But here he discusses one particular form of Lashon Hara, and that is defamation, which is punishable by death at the hands of heaven. Bamidbar 1437. We just had this a couple of weeks ago in our aliyahs. The people who spread the evil report about the land died in a plague before Hashem. Now we've talked about Valch Kal Vechomer, which is a, uh, when you talk about something, if something lesser is true, then how much more is something uh, heavier true? And so he's saying here, if defamation against an inanimate object, that is the land, is uh, subject to punishment at the hands of heaven, how much more is defamation of a human or a person punishable? Then Rabbi Yona goes on to discuss an even more specific type of defamation, and that is of the Motsi Shem Ra. Uh, this comes from Devarim 22, 13-21. This is when a newly married man uh, who defames his uh, bride by claiming in a bait dean that she had relations with another man during their period of engagement or erasing. His wife, if found guilty, could be subject to the death penalty. If, on the other hand, the charge is proven to be false, the husband is subject to malkut, lashes, and a money fine. 
In the Devering passage, it goes on to say, And they shall find him one hundred silver, and give to give that to the father of the girl, for he has issued a slander. Now the sages go on and say that one should give up his life rather than embarrass his fellow in public. We'll talk about that more later. But even though the woman, if found guilty, is in danger of death, it is the husband's crime of embarrassing his wife publicly that causes him to be subject to punishment at the hands of heaven. So very serious crime for him to falsely accuse his bride of of this and cause her public uh, embarrassment. The sages go on to talk about defamation in Yerushalayim, Bava, Bava, 8, 7. If one spreads a damaging rumor, not only about a person, but about a whole family, a whole name of a family in general, he can never be granted full atonement. Why is that? Because he must seek forgiveness from every single person he has harmed, not only the current living family members, but because it's against a family, then against all of the descendants. And of course, that would be impossible. Uh, the next one that we look at is on page 398. Uh, and this is um, Rabbi Yona brings up another one that is punishable by the death at the hands of heaven. And that is one uh, that I'll quote here, amuses himself with young girls. Or as he goes on to say, marries a young girl who is not even old enough to have children. It's considered a wasting of his seed. And they connect this to the stories you may remember of Ur and Onan from Bereshit 38. And these, if you remember, Judah went off to uh, and married another woman and he had children. And then uh, he was, uh, Tamar was promised and then the son died. And then he promised his next two sons. And they both wasted their seed rather than uh, have relations with Tamar. And Hashem, it says, caused them to die. Page 399 is Chilul Hashem. We've talked about this before. Chilul Hashem is desecrating the name of Hashem. But this one uh, on page 399 is specifically by a Torah scholar who does not conduct himself properly and modestly um, is also liable to death at the hands of heaven, heaven because he distances the people's love of Torah, causing them to look down upon it because of his actions. And the sages concur in Yoma 86a, when a person learns Torah and engages in Torah study and his manner is pleasant and his business dealings are conducted with grace, people will say good things about the Torah. But if he doesn't, they will say bad things about the Torah. And they reference Ezekiel 36.20. Now, whether you consider yourself a Torah scholar or not, I do think that the spirit of the law here is that how we conduct ourselves will affect how other people see the Torah because we claim to live a Torah life. Uh, the next one is uh, one who has a Beit Midrash or an opportunity for studying Torah in his city and does not go there to study. <clears throat> Anyone who challenges his Torah teacher's academy and one who renders a halakhic decision in the presence of his Torah teacher. We've talked about a few of these before and you can read more about them on page 401 and 402. We move on to page 403 
And uh, the next one is depriving the poor of tithes and other gifts to which they are entitled. The sages state in Mishnah a vote 5a pestilence, which would be a plague, comes to the world on account of the death penalties prescribed them by the Torah that are not under the jurisdiction of a Beit Din on account of violations related to what? Fruits of the Shemitah, such as withholding these from the poor. So if they're due, the, the tithe that's due the poor and it's not given to the poor, then this would be punishable by death at the hands of heaven. You can read a lot more detail about this on page 403 and 404. But he concludes with a warning that, uh, and we've talked about this previously, making a vow to charity and not fulfilling it is depriving the poor of what we have vowed to give him. So be cautious about that. The last one that he mentions in level six is the one who withholds his hand from charity to his destitute brother, ignoring the needs of, that he has of his own flesh and blood. And this is similar to individuals uh uh, who steal, who's called stealing from the poor because he is obligated to give to the needy and fails to do so, to do so, it is considered stealing from the poor. Okay. So that was level six. Level seven is karat. And this we've, we read in English in the Torah as being cut off. And this level covers prohibitions that are subject to the punishment of karat, which is also a type of death. And one one who transgresses these inadvertently has to bring a katah offering, according to the Torah. But karat also means that both the sinner and his offspring are cut off from life and die prematurely. Um, and this might include such things as having relationship uh, relations with a close relative. Vaikra. 2020 says they shall bear their sin and they shall die childless. Uh, Rabbi Yona teaches that there are two levels of karat. One, uh, for example, one who has relations with a close relative. This is the standard type of karat and it is punishable. Uh, this is also includes one who eats chametz on Pesach and works on Yom Kippur. The second one is even more severe, and that is though being cut off from life in this world and life in the world to come. Uh, this includes those who practice idolatry and who degrade the Torah and those that are considered generally enemies of Hashem. Now, next week, when we go into level 10, we're going to, the whole level 10 is about this very second type of Karat. So he asks the question, or we we might ask the question, does this mean that if we see uh, those that we think are liable to correct, living to a very old age, that Hashem has not followed, followed through with his word, with his punishment? And Rabbi Yonah tells us to be very careful about this. Hashem may grant an extension on this, uh, even for two or three generations, for several reasons. It may be that the person has done something meritorious in his life. You know, perhaps he's he has done a sin punishable by Karet, but he's also done something meritorious in his life. And his shim, rather than uh, saving his reward, as we would prefer, for the Alam Haba, he's going to reward him now in this life rather than in the world to come. 
In Devarim 7.10, it says, To those who despise him, he repays in their lifetime for whatever good they may have done so as to eliminate them. He will not delay to repay one who despises him, but will repay him uh, in his lifetime. And therefore, what appears to us, maybe a sinner is being successful, may be really just a precursor to his downfall. In the Shabbat Psalm that uh, some of us read on Friday nights, it says, A boorish man cannot know, nor can a fool understand, when the wicked flourish like grass and the evil doers blossom, it is that they will be destroyed for eternity. Okay. <clears throat> on page 410, uh, he talks again about why punishment might be delayed. Uh, in Kohelet Rabbah 7.32, it says, For three reasons the Holy One is slow to anger with the wicked. Perhaps they will repent. Uh, and we know that Teshuvah is the answer. Two, perhaps they have performed mitzvah for which Hashem wished to re- re- wishes to reward them now. And three, perhaps children will descend from this evil person, uh, for righteous person, Children will descend from this evil person. And we have the example of wicked King Ahaz and the righteous King Hezkiahu who came from him. So uh, he was able, he delayed the punishment for King Ahaz so that a King Hezkiahu could be born. Based on Devarim 135 and Bamidbar 1435, regarding the generation that died in the wilderness, Karet, Early death is considered by the sages as dying before the age of 50, while death at the hands of heaven that we just covered entails dying before the age of 60. But again, he cautions us that not everyone who dies at the age of 50 or even before 60 should be assumed to have committed a sin punishable or the hands of heaven. And you can read more about how they determine all of that on pages 413 and 414. Uh, he goes on to discuss the effect of karat, karat on future generations. Of those who are liable to this type of fun, pun, punishment, the one who causes his offspring to fall prey to evil and corruption will not only cause, his, uh, uh, cause the offspring to die early, but they will become rebellious. So uh, a sinner has children that are sinners, um, and so he, he may be subject to an early death. His children may be subject to an early death as well as his children may become rebellious. And it is said that by the sages that this is what can happen to the offspring of a child who was conceived during Nidah. Now, at this point, Rabbi, does spend, Rabbi Yonah spends some time talking about Nidah. And it says a woman remains in pure in her nidah state, even if she has ceased to have her menstrual flow as required, as long as she has not immersed in that pool of natural water or the waters of a river or a spring. So this is an excellent reason to pray for our mikvah, to give to the mikvah fund, and do all you can to uh, help bring about that mikvah project very soon. Okay, on page 416, we're going to move on to level 8. Now, this section covers sins that would be punishable by a by judicial execution. And the Torah also prescribes what they are and how it's to be carried out. And there are four basic methods, and we're going to talk about those. 
Um, and this responsibility for carrying out this type of punishment is delegated to a Beit Din, specifically a Sanhedrin Beit Din, comprised of at least 23 qualified judges. And this comes from uh, Mishnah Sanhedrin 2a. So the first type is stoning. And this would include one who cohabits with his father's wife or a daughter-in-law or another male, a practitioner of divination, one who desecrates the Shabbat, one who curses his father or mother, one who cohabits with a betrothed woman, not his own, an insider to idolatry, a sorcerer or a wayward or rebellious son, one who blasphemes the divine, and one who worships idols. These would be subject to the punishment of stoning. The next one is burning. And this one includes one who cohabits with a woman and her daughter, or with his wife's daughter, her son's daughter, her daughter's daughter, or with his mother-in-law, his mother-in-law's mother, or his father-in-law's mother. So very close relatives. The next one is beheading. And this would include a murderer, or the people of a subverted city. Now, what is a subverted city? A subverted city, and several cities may come to your mind here in the United States, uh, is a city where all of the residents, and it specifically says of a Jewish city, in Eretz Israel, not the United States, are led astray. The entire city is led astray and worships idols. And that is called a subverted city. Sanhedrin 111b is where that is found. The next one and final one is strangulation. Uh, this would include one who strikes his father or mother or one who abducts a person uh, among the children of Israel. A sage who rebels against the word of the, of the great Sanhedrin. One who prophesies falsely in the name of, Sh of Shem or one who prophesies in the name of any false god, and one who cohabits with a married woman, so adultery. So these are the four types of, of uh, a, a judicial execution. And of course, today, uh, these cannot be carried out because we don't have a functioning Sanhedrin. Uh, but Rabbi Yona cautions us that just because we don't have the Sanhedrin and these can't be carried out by the court does not mean that they will be completely overlooked. Um, perhaps, he goes on to say, perhaps the sinner will die in a manner that is similar to the, uh, to the punishment. For example, he may fall from a roof or die in a fire or die by drowning. Uh, so, um, so it could be that it's almost at the hands of heaven since it cannot be at the hands of man any longer at this time. He also reminds us that an earthly court cannot suspend punishment if there is repentance because man cannot know the true heart of a, of a man. However, a heavenly court can accept sincere repentance and prevent the fates that we've discussed here. Again, this is why teshuva is so, so critical in our lives. Okay, uh, he also goes on to talk about a particular sin, though it is not punishable by the death penalty, is very similar in its severity. So it's interesting that this one came up this week because this is what is in our parsha this very week. And in fact, Rabbi was talking about it in his Aliyah.
And that is the sin of cohabitation, not only with a woman, but an idolatrous woman. And the sages say, state that one who cohabits with an Aramean woman, zealous ones may kill him. Uh, comes from Sanhedrin 81b, and it's based on the story in our Parsha this week of Pincus, who pierced both uh, the man and the woman through with a spear. However, the sages were very strict with this and generally disproved of this kind of uh, handing out of justice was only applicable in the times of the great, great Sanhedrin. And since we don't have a great Sanhedrin, we cannot go out on our own and uh, carry out this punishment. He also points out, Rabbi Yonah does, that uh, generally when a person is punished by death, there has to be at least two witnesses. Two witnesses. But in the case of this particular one, and you may remember the story from Pincus, there was no uh, court hearing, there was no uh, witnesses brought, although there were probably witnesses around. Uh, and so what the justice is taken very quickly. And you can read more about this uh, on pages 421 and 422, or listen to Rabbi this week on his Aliyah. And again, Rabbi Yonah cautions us that although we cannot carry out this punishment today, uh, that does not prevent the hands of heaven from carrying out such a punishment. He uh, ends this level with a couple of similar ones. Uh, the sages state in Avo 589, the sword comes to the world on account of the following, delaying justice, perverting justice, and for those who render Torah rulings against true halakha. A second one is savage beasts can come to the world for vain oaths and desecration of the name of Hashem. Okay, now this next one is very interesting and um, it's the ninth level of severity. This section covers uh, actions for which we must allow ourselves to be killed rather than transgress these things. The sages state in Sanhedrin 74a, if someone tells you, do this or you will be killed, uh, you should go ahead and allow yourself to be killed. But they start out by saying only in these certain circumstances, because based on Vaikra 18.5, it says, you shall observe my decrees and laws, which by which a man shall do them and live. And uh, so, therefore, life above everything. But there are a few circumstances where uh, life is not as important as carrying these things out. And the first one is idol worship. So, if someone says, bow down to this uh, idol or you will be killed, then be killed. And there are examples of that throughout scriptures in various stories. Illicit relations and murder. But they go on to say, if it's in public or if it's during a time of religious persecution, uh, then, um, got my brain lost, that uh, Viagra 22.32 says, I should be sanctified among the children of Israel. So if these things happen, if anything happens during a time of religious persecution or in a public place, then for any mitzvah, we should allow ourselves to be killed because uh, Rashi goes on to say in Sanhedrin 74a, 
During times of religious persecution, one may not let the persecutors succeed in their campaign of terrorizing the Jews. For if they are successful, they will continue. And if even one submits in private, it becomes public and will strengthen the persecutor. Since the very continuity of Torah life is at stake, martyrdom is required for any mitzvah, even in a private setting. And this is a basic element of the obligation to sanctify Hashem's name. Um, this come, uh, comes from Sanhedrin 74a. So, um, if you have questions uh, specifically about anything relating that you think might relate to this, I would encourage you to speak to Rabbi or one of the, uh, the Zakins. Okay, at the end of level nine, he talks to us, Rabbi Yonah, about things that he calls the dust of. So these things are not overtly wrong, but they have some kind of uh, connection to something of the same level. For example, the first one is called the dust of idol worship. So in Pesachim 25a, the sages say, one may be healed of a life-threatening illness with any substance uh, except for the wood of an Asherah pole. So if someone were to say to you, the only thing that's going to heal your illness is the wood of the Asherah pole, then we're prohibited from taking that. Uh, and this is why it's called the dust of idol worship, because it's not a, we're not exactly uh, told not to take this for medicine, but because it gives such an appearance of, of uh, perhaps someone would see that and attribute that to the Asherah rather than to Hashem. Uh, the next one is the dust of illicit relations. So um, this one's kind of amusing a little bit. If, if one says that I am overcome by desire for this married woman, I must have her and I've now become ill and the only thing that will heal me is to have this woman, um, we are not to do that. The man is not to do this. So we can see how serious this is, even from the safeguard of touching a woman, that he is not even allowed to, even at the even if he's at the point of death of desiring this woman, he cannot have her. Okay, the next one is the dust of murder. And the dust of murder is the act of humiliating another person. When a person is humiliated publicly and it says the blood drains from his face, uh, it is if bloodshed occurred. And the sages state in Bava Metzia 58b, the agony of being humiliated is more bitter than death, and therefore one, one who humiliates another is considered in a sense to have committed murder. And they continue, a person should always cast himself into a fiery furnace in order not to shame his fellow publicly. So uh, your death is preferred over causing uh, a public humiliation to one of your fellows. And they use the story of Tamar to support this, who uh, was on her way to, to be burned. Uh, rather than publicly humiliate Yehuda, she was, rather, she was prepared to die and, until he came forth. And you can read more about that on pages 430 and 431.
<coughs> okay. The last one that he talks about in this section is on page 432. And he concludes this section with a prohibition that is similar. And that is the commandment to observe Shabbat. The sages state in Yerushalami, better quote, one, five. Shabbat is equivalent to all the mitzvot combined. And Rabbi, uh, our rabbi even talked about this today in his Aliyah, about how the effect of Shabbat can spread. And they state in Kulun, Kulun I can't say it, Kulin 5a, one who worships idols or desecrates Shabbat publicly, even if he keeps all the other mitzvot, is considered an apostate regarding the entire Torah. He has the same status as a person who disregards all the mitzvot. And the note on the bottom of page 432 states this. A person who worships idols denies Hashem's divinity. Similarly, one who desecrates Shabbat publicly denies the basic message of Shabbat, that Hashem created the world in six days and rested on the seventh. And these are such central foundations of our faith that one who denies them is tantamount to one who disregards the entire Torah. So again, we see the very importance of keeping Shabbat. Okay, that was a quick run through levels six through nine. And so, very quickly, we learned in level six, those are punishable by death at the hands of heaven, such as causing pain to a widow or uh, withholding your hand from charity. The seventh was punishable by karat or being cut off, which is also a type of death or an early death. This one can affect the sinner as well as his offspring, and they may die childless or the children become rebellious. And this one specifically has to do with having relations with a close relative. Um, the eighth level covered uh, sins by capital punishment. We looked at the four different types. And we talked, uh, it included in this category would be cohabiting with a close relative, striking your father or mother, prophesying falsely in the name of Hashem, or even in the name of a false god. And then we talked about uh, the subverted city. We also learned that capital punishment can't be carried out today because we don't have the Sanhedrin, but that doesn't prevent the hands of heaven from carrying out those punishments. <clears throat> the ninth level is ones in which we should allow ourselves to be killed or die rather than transgress. And we looked at some of those are idol worship, illicit relations, and murder. And then he looked at several of those that were similarly related, the dust of, because they may not seem obviously wrong. And we talked about being healed through the wood of an Asherah pole, becoming ill for the desire of a particular married woman, uh, and claiming he must have the woman, humiliating another person publicly, and desecrating the Shabbat publicly. So, like I said, next week we will cover level 10, which whew, will be the last of this difficult very difficult section, and that will cover uh, very in-depth the uh, sins that will cause a person not only to be cut off from this world, but the world to come. So uh, if you have the book, you might want to read ahead and look at what some of what those are. Okay, so let's stop and take a breath. I know that was a lot to cover in a short period of time. 
And let's talk about a Medote review. Now, last week we reviewed Alacrity, which uh, very simply is the opposite of procrastination. And Everyday Holiness asked the question last week, how can we stoke the fire of our enthusiasm? And if you remember the answer, <coughs> the answer was gratitude. So how about this week we review the uh, Mido of gratitude. The Hebrew for gratitude, if you remember, is hakarat hatov. And this means recognizing the good. The good is always already there. It's just that we need to practice seeing the good in every situation. Uh, the ancient proverb says, Who is rich? One who rejoices in his own lot. If you live like this and you begin to want to give thanks for everything that anybody, Hashem or anything that comes to you, um, it is a sign when gratitude is well established and overflowing, it is a sign of a heart that has been made right and whole. Uh, also, gratitude cannot exist with arrogance and selfishness. Uh, we can be, it seems like we, we can even be grateful for inanimate objects. When you get in your car and it starts, you're thankful. Um, and we, in the chapter on everyday holiness, I think we even talked about how uh, Moshe had Aaron turn the uh, water to blood because the water had in his babyhood saved his life, basically. Um, sometimes it can be easier to be grateful to Hashem for what he gives us rather than to one another. Sometimes it's harder to, to just say thank you to one another. It's a lot easier to say thank you to Hashem. But we need to be ready to give thanks to one another for every little good that comes our way, even if it's not something really big. The soul trait of gratitude is the key to opening up the heart. Strengthening our midot of gratitude also helps us reduce or eliminate that endless search for more and more stuff. If we are grateful for what we have, then um, we're not necessarily going out and looking for more. You know, think about a, a young person who gets his first car. That car may be a beat up junker, but he's out there polishing it and taking care of it and and so proud of it because he is so grateful that he has a car at all. Um, so he's not out looking for some brand new 2019 model. He's, ha he's just happy to have a car. And if we need to get in that mindset. Okay, so what are the obstacles to gratitude? Again, this seems to come up almost every time. First, we are becoming too absorbed in the things of this world and the enjoyment of them rather than on heavenly things. Second, we kind of get used to having good things. Hashem is so good to us. We kind of get used to it and we begin to take it for granted. Another one is, is that we're negatively focused. Uh, we focus more on the bad things or the troubles or the trials that we have rather than on the good things that we have. 
And Rabbi Ibn Pakuda says, because of this attitude, many of the good things are left unenjoyed and the happiness to be had from them becomes tainted either because we don't recognize the good in it or their value. And we are encouraged to a kind of radical kind of gratitude, realizing that for you and me, even in our troubles, Whatever the all-merciful Hashem does, he does for good. And if you remember the story of Akiva and his rooster and donkey and lamp, he was outside of a city and he had a rooster, a donkey, and a lamp. And uh, it talks about how the uh, something came along and his rooster died, his donkey was attacked, and the lamp blows out. And rather than be... Um, disheartened or ungrateful, um, he's grateful. And the next morning he finds out that the city outside of which he camped was attacked and had the rooster crowed or the donkey brayed or they had seen his lamp, he would have also been attacked. So the thing is, is that sometimes in the middle of our troubles, we can't see the bigger picture. So we need to learn our one of our very favorite phrases, which is, Gamzu letova. Not that we are oblivious to the troubles. We know they're there and they're challenges and we work through them. Maybe we use them to see if we need to repent. But because we realize we can't see the bigger picture and perhaps there are things in this situation that will actually turn out to be a blessing. Gamzu Letova. So when we take on the curriculum of reminding ourselves every day to be grateful, we change our whole perception of life. And with that, we change our lives. We can change our lives from bitter and negative to positive and joyful. And it begins in our heart. And it prov- and having that grateful heart then provides us with resources to help us face whatever troubles might be coming along. So let's end today with Psalm 92. It is good to give thanks to the Lord and to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to proclaim your goodness in the morning and your faithfulness in the night. So be grateful. Start a great gratitude journal. Okay, that's our lesson for this week. Was We have started the three weeks of mourning. I encourage you to remember to pray for the city of Saginaw. Pray earnestly for the completion of the mikvah and pray with all urgency for the coming of Mashiach who will rebuild the next temple. Thank you for being here. Uh, Have a great week and uh, continue on with your three weeks of introspection and we will see you again next week.